following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. We have a number of men and women in this congregation who build things around the house, or perhaps for hobbies. For me, it's guitars. For other people, it's more useful things for day-to-day life. But the master craftsman, or even the hobbyist, needs to take a few steps before he gets into his work. He needs to sit down and conceive of an idea, what it is he wants to build, be it a cabinet, a table, a musical instrument, whatever, and then design it, or retrieve a design for it, and plan his work, gathering the tools as he prepares, and then finally to begin building it. But what does he do after he's completed his building project? He delights in it. He takes great satisfaction in it. It could be something as simple as putting in a curtain rod or, or putting in a new faucet on the kitchen sink. It doesn't have to be some complex thing. You're going to be very excited that you finished something. You might even take a picture on your phone and send it to some friends or phone somebody and say, hey, guess what I just did? I'm so glad this worked out. Well, God, through Christ, expressed in this Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7 in Matthew's Gospel, is laying out... His plan for his people, his kingdom people. And particularly here in the Beatitudes, at the beginning of chapter 5, each Beatitude gives us two aspects of this plan, of what he's doing. The first half of each Beatitude describes his kingdom people, who it is they are to be. And then the second half describes the character of his kingdom, what it is they should expect to receive upon the conclusion of God's plan and design in their lives, corporately and individually, who they are and what the kingdom in which they will dwell is like. In so doing, Jesus is coming as uh, as a Jewish teacher to God's people, the Jews in this text. He comes not with a political program, which is what they expected during the Second Temple period, but he comes with a spiritual program, heralding forth a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, we're told in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, where we read that he was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And what kingdom? The kingdom of heaven. So here... In this third beatitude, we receive a royal decree and teaching from our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this teaching is for your comfort, for your edification, and for your instruction. But it's also for pushing back against the kingdom of sinful spiritual rebellion in the world, as I mentioned last week. What I seek to show you today from verse 5 from this third beatitude is that God designs to make his people gentle in spirit for communion with him. You see that, the kingdom people, kingdom character. God designs to make his people gentle in spirit for communion with him. 
what's expressed here as inheritance of the land. So we'll um, unpack this just in two parts corresponding to the two halves of the saying here. First, God's design for a gentle humanity or God's design of a gentle humanity and then God's blessing of divine communion. I didn't plan it this way, but this lands in God's providence very appropriately on a morning in which we're observing the Lord's Supper, which is a picture of communion with God. And we'll explain that a little bit later. So first, consider God's design of a gentle humanity. It's important to draw the contrast, to talk about what biblical gentleness is not. And to set it aside uh, or apart from what the world conceives of as gentleness. But then to move forward from there and define what it is. How, how the Bible talks about gentleness. What this looks like. So first, what biblical gentleness is not. It's not a natural disposition. It's not something that you're born with. You know, Some people are born more gentle than other people. Some people are a bit more easygoing. But that's not what we're talking about when we come to blessed are the gentle or blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's something different than that. Notice in Numbers 12, 3, what did we read about Moses? That he was very humble or gentle or meek, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. But was he born that way? What do we know about the life of Moses? What did he do in Exodus chapter 2? He did something that was very not gentle, even if it didn't correspond to his calling to be the deliverer of the people of Israel. What did he do? One day he goes out into the the place where the Israelite slaves were laboring. And he kind of, he sees a slave master, an Egyptian slave master, abusing his brethren according to the flesh. And Exodus 2, 3 tells us this about what Moses did. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses, by temperament and disposition, was not a gentle man. He was one who was inclined to take initiative of himself, even to perpetrate an act of violence to get his way, however noble his intentions were. He was not a gentleman by disposition. And yet, flash forward many years later, and we read in Numbers 12, 3, that he was the most gentle, the most humble man on the face of the earth. I have two friends here in the area, here in the Greenville area, both um, men who exercise significant positions of leadership in their various fields. And in conversations with them, very instructive for me, They both said that the Lord has worked in their lives to produce a greater measure of gentleness than they had in the past. For one man, he said, at some point in my life, after I had attained a position of leadership in the army, I realized uh, that I was a very rough and harsh person. And some trusted mentors of his even came, Christian mentors, and said, you know, you really got to develop a gentle spirit. How do I do that? How can I come up with that? You can't do it on your own. You need to seek the Lord's help. And by God's grace, he is not yet the man that he will be, but he is not the man that he once was. And another brother uh, who's a preacher shared with me that early on in his ministry, he had a couple men come to him, some elders, and say, you know, your preaching is rather has a hard edge to it. 
It's, for, it's good content, but it's forceful. And it, it grates against our ears and against our hearts in a way that doesn't correspond with the word. And so he then engaged in a period of fasting and prayer, asking the Lord's help to make him more gentle. So this gentleness, biblical gentleness, it's not necessarily a natural disposition. Because I can tell you for both of these guys, I've seen them deal with people. They are very gentle. They're very loving and tender-hearted, especially when it counts. And so you see that the Lord does this work. But it's also not apathy. It's not merely being easygoing, as I've said. The meek person, the gentle person, the humble person isn't necessarily, actually isn't at all, a pushover. Not a welcome mat, not a doormat. Consider a few examples. Abraham, that great patriarch of old in Genesis chapter 13, he gets into an issue or his, uh, his uh, workers get into an issue with his nephew Lot's workers. And how does Abraham deal with this? He goes to Lot and he says, is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you go to the left, then I'll go to the right. But if you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. You see, Abraham, who had a position of authority over Lot and seniority, yet defers to his nephew and takes a humble course. But in the very next chapter, what does Abraham do? He leads 300 men in a battle to deliver Lot from uh, foreign captives, chasing them from Canaan all the way up north of the Euphrates and, and toward Damascus. And having a great victory. I'll put it that way. He wasn't a pushover. Second example, we'll just have a few of these. In Jeremiah, the prophet, he had a hard calling. He was called to be a prophet of God and to declare the truth of God in the midst of a very wicked and corrupt generation where all the other prophets in Jerusalem were people-pleasing, false prophets spreading lies. And Jeremiah, at the, very, at the outset of his call, said, I am but a youth. I have no power of my own. How can I do this? But he never backed down. Whenever he was confronted with falsehood, he called it out, even getting thrown into a pit and being left for dead. Another example, King David himself, he whose psalm we read in confession this morning, in his life, when he was, after he'd been anointed king by Samuel, after he'd been confirmed with victories over Goliath and in, in other battles, after he heard crowds chant, King Saul has his thousands, but King David, or David has his tens of thousands. Yet, he entered into a protracted period of being on the run from King Saul, and he never, ever lashed out in hatred or violence against King Saul, but rather in humility. He always regarded Saul to be the Lord's anointed. And when someone claimed to have killed King Saul, even though that claim was a lie, David executed justice on that man. And I believe that's born out of humility and meekness, this great warrior. So pairing together strength and conviction and backbone and effectiveness with meekness and humility and grace. You see, these things comply together in the Bible. And Paul himself, when he's delivering these letters, exoriating the Corinthian church for their many sins and their immorality, he says in 2 Corinthians 10.1, Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ... I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. 
in the midst of a very strongly worded letter, yet appeals to meekness and gentleness. There's no, there's no contradiction in these things. It's not naturally, uh, it's not a natural disposition. You're not born with biblical meekness. You're, uh, it's not equivalent to apathy or being a pushover or even just simply being easygoing. And finally, as I think you've seen, it's not man-made. This isn't something we come up with on our own. When Stephen faced martyrdom before the Sanhedrin in the book of Acts, he didn't have that gift of speech. He didn't have that courage, that boldness, even that humility to ask God to forgive his persecutors because he was a nice guy. He had that as a gift of God's grace. But above all, we see this in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He who could claim a natural or essential gentleness. He who could claim to have been born this way with a peaceable nature, with tenderness and love, yet says of himself in John's gospel in chapter 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. And he continues in John 14 in his last discourse to his disciples. Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the father abiding in me does his works. You see this humility. Paul describes in Philippians 2, who, although he existed in the form of God in eternity past, being very God with very God, equal in power and glory, yet, yet, did not regard equality with God a thing to be taken or grasped or stolen away or claimed for himself, but rather emptied himself of that glory, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men that he might accomplish what his father has sent him to do, to save sinners, to draw all God's people to himself. And Christ says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, as he does that great work, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We see what biblical gentleness is not. It's not a natural disposition. It's not apathy or being a pushover. It's not man-made. And in Christ, we're beginning to see what it is. Biblical gentleness is a grace of God whereby the believer, as a child of God, one adopted into his family, knows himself to be indebted to God for every good thing and has learned to submit to trials, trusting that God, his Father, is working all things, even tragic reversals, even great disappointments and persecutions for his ultimate and eternal good. Consider Christ in Gethsemane when he prays, agonizing over the prospect of being separated from his Father, and he says, not my will, but yours be done. The height of meekness Meekness twinned with strength and courage and conviction. 
And this biblical gentleness, notice, is a grace of God, as I've said. It's a supernatural endowment from God. It, it, it is born out of the previous, two, um, the previous two Beatitudes, if you look back at your text. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. If you're poor in spirit, having recognized your sin before God, and then you mourn over that sin and its influence in the world and how it's messed up your life, that will cause you then to be meek and gentle, indebted to God for every good thing, namely deliverance from that sin and restoration into his presence and grace, but even Christ, who had no sin, who knew no sin, but yet was made sin on our behalf, that we might be called sons of God. Even Christ comes before the Father with this sense of dependence upon him and indebtedness to him and in full submission to God's will. It is a supernatural endowment from God. We sang this. Or we will sing it, actually, after this sermon in Psalm 37. And this, I believe, is what Christ is referencing exactly when we get to this beatitude. In Psalm 37, 8 to 11, the psalmist says, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evildoing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. So you see the second half creeping in here. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place. And he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land. And will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The exact words of Christ, except in Hebrew here, are in Psalm 37. Christ is referencing this. I believe he's referencing this here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. And notice that God will do it. He will bring it about. And Galatians 5.22 and following describe this as a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so biblical gentleness is indeed a grace of God. It's a supernatural endowment. Just as he came down in a pillar of cloud upon the tabernacle to uh, intervene in human affairs, to speak to Aaron and Miriam and Moses, so too he intervened supernaturally in our lives to work this as a master craftsman executing his plan and design for us. But finally, this gentleness, it's a characteristic in relation To both God and neighbor. It has a vertical dimension. Just as poverty in spirit and mourning over sin is vertical. It has that dimension but also has a horizontal dimension. It affects how we relate to one another. And this is a critically important uh, aspect. Just baked into what gentleness is. We see it in Moses' life. When he intercedes on behalf of Miriam and Aaron. This is part of his gentleness as he goes to the Lord. When he intercedes on behalf of all the people of Israel, begging God, pleading for God to pardon their sin of creating a golden calf at the base of Sinai. And we see it again and again in his life in relationship to others, his concern for others. This was the motivation of Christ, the glory of God and winning a people for him, but also compassion for sinners. Compassion for fallen humanity. This characteristic of meekness, of biblical gentleness, it's not only defining how we relate to God and our sins and in our dependence upon Him, 
but also defines how we relate to one another. Christ in the Sermon on the Mount and in all of his teaching, like, like other rabbis of his day, was a master of wisdom. And when he says, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the land or the earth, he's bringing this message of wisdom into his pronouncements of blessing. You see, gentleness and meekness, it demonstrates wisdom and how we conduct our affairs with others. Proverbs 15 verse 1 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Have you seen this in your own life? Boys and girls. When you get into a problem with your brothers or with your brothers and your sisters, how can you make it worse? But you said you shouldn't do that. Mom and dad said this. I'm going to tell mom and dad. I'm going to get you one of these days. Any of those sound familiar? Those harsh words which stir up anger. But what does a gentle answer sound like? I'm not sure why you're acting this way, but I love you anyway. And I'm going to walk away and we can play again later. Man, to hear one of you say that, that would be amazing. I would say, what a wise child. I'd give their parents a gold star. And that's what Christ is teaching us here. That in this gentleness, there's great blessing. He's pronouncing it upon you. That as God works this spirit of meekness and gentleness in you, he's working wisdom into you. And there's great blessing in that. So we've considered God's design of a gentle humanity, and we could go on and on for days on that, but it's, it behooves us to press on here to now look at the second half of the verse. For they shall inherit the earth, God's blessing of divine communion. God's blessing of divine communion. And there are two aspects of this communion. There's a future aspect reflected in our text. They shall inherit the earth in the future, but there's also a present reality. That's being inaugurated in Christ's ministry when he comes in and announces the coming, the, the revival of the Davidic kingdom, this kingdom of heaven. There's a present reality here as well that he's getting to. But first, the future reality. Some Old Testament background here. When he says inherit the earth, we could translate that as inherit the land. And Psalm 37, again, tells us about this. They will inherit the land. The humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. And whenever we see that language tied as it is into old covenant promises with Abraham, with David, with uh, Jacob and Isaac, we should immediately think of the land of Canaan, that promised land of the Jews. What does it mean to inherit the land? Well, for them, it meant after the Exodus to come in, to take possession of it under David's reign and Solomon's reign, to expand the borders to what God had prophesied from the great river to the river Euphrates, from the Mediterranean, the great sea to the Dead Sea, and all of that land to exercise control, have peace and order there. But all of that is but a picture of a spiritual reality that Christ is announcing. The spiritual reality of dwelling in the presence of God, of taking once again that which was lost in the expulsion from paradise in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden for succumbing to the temptation of the enemy. Christ is saying, blessed are the gentle, those who have the spirit of gentleness born from above, for they shall be brought into the presence of God. 
and experience divine communion with him face to face, even as Moses, even better than Moses, I should say. This communion in the future is the eternal dwelling place of all those who trust in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's it's the eternal dwelling place of, of, of perfected blessedness and holiness in God's immediate presence for all eternity. It's communion with the triune God, with the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, as we see written all over Christ's teaching. This eternal dwelling place is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And those of us who trust in Christ, we have this to look forward to, to long for, that we shall dwell with God and enjoy full use of all that he has made. The appropriate parallel to this is actually to go to the end of Matthew in chapter 28 when Christ, right before his ascension, says, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go ye therefore, uh, make disciples of all nations, teaching and baptizing them. And as he says that, notice he's saying, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then, almost immediately after that, he ascends up into heaven to behold his Father face to face. To enjoy his father and and direct communion with him. And yet he still has all authority on heaven and on earth. And he orders all things as a perfect king for uh, the good of his people and the glory of God. In other words, he enjoys full use of all that God the father has made and handed over to him. And Christ is saying here, echoing David in Psalm 37, this too for you, for those who are gentle. This too, you will behold God in glory and you will enjoy full use of his creation. At some point here, we have to stop in humility ourselves and stop the speculating and even the questions and just say, I'm not sure what that looks like, but I trust God that it's true and I trust that it will be glorious and I trust that it will redound to the glory of God. That communion in the future is experienced in some small measure, even in the present. It's a spiritual reality that we receive through faith as an open hand. It's a gift from God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. And so even in persecutions, even in poverty ourselves, even in deprivations and trials and reversals, yet we can experience this inheritance of all things that God has made in that he has given us contentment in gentleness. Can you consider this? When something bad happens in your life, when somebody says a harsh word to you, when somebody disappoints you or breaks a promise, when somebody cheats you in business or at work, or when you just disappoint yourself in your own sins. What's one of the worst things about the whole experience? Not so much the wrong perpetrated against you, but the feelings that get drudged up out of the black bottom of your heart and mixed up into your spirit of of being angry and loathsome and wrathful. I was talking to a brother the other day and I I confessed to him, sort of. (laughs) I said, you know, a couple months ago, I just had a spell where I was very angry at certain things that were transpiring in my life. And some of that anger was even directed to him and it was irrational and I didn't want to experience those things. 
And I said, you know, I gave them to the Lord. I said, God, get rid of these things for me. You see, God was making known to me, and perhaps he does so for you as well. The depravity of my heart and of your heart, when we're faced with trials and reversals and disappointments and unpleasant surprises. But imagine those things come. They don't bounce off of you like you're made of stone or anything, but you receive them. And in fact, they expand your emotional life as you rejoice in what God is doing in your life. Easier said than done. But God can do it. God can do it. That's part of inheriting the land, inheriting the earth, even in this life. Whatever our material realities may be, whatever our relationships may look like, yet we can rest in the presence of God. This communion in the presence, as we will see at the table this morning, is through Jesus Christ, our mediator. The only mediator between God and man, who is indeed the promised Messiah. And this inheritance which we receive through him, he alone who is worthy, he alone who saves sinners. It's by the spirit of God working in and through God's appointed means. Namely word, what we're doing right now. Prayer, what we've been doing in this service. And sacrament, as we go to the table and we behold the elements as Christ set before us. This communion in the present, many Christians, I fear, seek to pursue it on their own apart from the church. And many, certainly if you broaden it out, many spiritual people seek to taste the good life, experience spiritual good or benevolence apart from God. And, you know, as we go out in our communities and as as we're speaking to people in, in restaurants and stores, our neighbors, our friends, our family members, whatever, we may hear, yeah, I'm a spiritual person, but I don't like the institutionalized church. So it's full of hypocrites. There's a bunch of people there that I just don't want anything to do with. And I get that. It could be tough. I haven't really experienced that here. Praise the Lord. But Certainly in other places, we've seen it, we've known it, perhaps we've even perpetrated it ourselves. And yet, God himself has appointed churches of of faithful believers, hospitals of sinners, as also outposts of his kingdom. And this is where communion with God happens. That's why we call the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, communion. Because we come to him, we commune with him, we experience communion with one another through union with Christ. This glorious spiritual mystery that he's appointed is a foretaste of that which awaits us, which is declared to us in our text. They shall inherit the earth. They shall experience and enjoy direct, immediate communion with God. Now, as the artisan goes about his work, Building things, planing and leveling things, nailing things and riveting things. He continually tracks his progress. Perhaps he even has KPIs, key performance indicators or whatever. And he takes his project from beginning to end in steps. And perhaps sometimes he has to make adjustments and, and, and fix his plan. God never has to fix his plan. He's ordained it and decreed it from eternity past. And it's up to us now to track the progress that he's making in each of our lives. So what progress has God yet made in your hearts? 
Those of you who trust in Christ, who have received him as Savior, what, what progress has he made? How, how can you measure it? If someone were to ask you, if I was to come up to you after the service, testify to me, what has God done in your life? How are you being made more and more like Christ, more and more gentle, more and more meek and humble? Consider your gentleness quotient, your GQ. For those who have a reputation for gentleness and meekness, are you simply affable by nature? Are you easygoing and enjoyable to be around? That's good. Have you internalized Southern gentility, courtesy, and manners? Good. But have you done those things? Are you those things apart from the Spirit's inward work? If so, it's worthless. It's pointless. Do you sincerely and truly, and here's the test now, set others ahead of yourself in the meekness, the humility of self-denial, of regard for your neighbors to the right and to the left. If that's true and sincere of you, then praise God, he's doing a work in your life. For those who are not gentle by nature or by reputation, perhaps those who, for whatever reason, intimidate those around you. When you consider your gentleness quotient, have you been made new in the inner man? Does your spirit yearn to reflect Jesus Christ in his holy gentleness? Do you, like my friends I mentioned earlier, recognize deficiencies in your gentleness quotient and wish to be like God, more gentle, to be like him who deals tenderly and patiently with his people in his righteousness and holiness and long-suffering and loving kindness and covenant loyalty and truth? I have good news for you, for both of you, regardless of the raw materials with which you were born, whether you are by nature an easygoing person, a docile kind of personality, or by nature a bit rough and tough. Whatever the case may be, do you desire a higher gentleness quotient? If you do, look at this promise. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth Behind it is a commitment from God to make his people, his kingdom citizens, as it were, more gentle. So do you plead with him on the basis of these words of Christ, this royal decree? Do you plead with him to make you more like Christ our Lord? To be more gentle, to be more humble. And if not, why not? Look at what he's promised to those who are gentle in spirit. He's promised an eternal inheritance. An eternal inheritance of communion with him now and for eternity. And he attends, intends, like a master craftsman, to adorn his people with all the virtues of godliness in union with Christ, that we might then dwell with him in everlasting blessedness, that we might then behold him face to face. And he will not fail. He is even now shaping us as instruments of eternal glory. All those who trust in Christ. And surely he shall do it. He will tenderly and gently lead all his people all the way home to that better country. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.